I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. What I'd like to talk about today is a brief exploration of several Rambas quotes, ones that I have brought up a number of times in talks, ones that keep resonating in my mind over the years, and ones that the more I think about them, really provoke a deeper exploration. The first one, maybe the most obvious one, is be here now. That was almost the rallying cry of a whole generation of people back in the 60s and 70s. And yet, as Ramdas aged and his practice deepened, instead of talking about be here now, he talked about loving awareness. And I myself, and particularly in this group where it's called Healing at the Edge, we really emphasize that awareness is the foundation for compassion, which is one one form of love, of course. So that it's possible to be here now and not be very happy about it, right? One can be aware of what you're feeling, and certainly, eventually, awareness purifies things. Vipassana meditation leads to wholeness without necessarily bringing in ideas of love or compassion. But what recent studies in neurobiology and psychology have found 
is that if we actually actively cultivate love and compassion, it greatly speeds up the movement toward well-being, which is really suggesting a healing process, that it isn't simply being aware of what we're feeling, but being aware of what we're feeling, being here now, and then taking this leap, this surrender into the spacious heart, and trusting that we can love what's happening right now, that we can have compassion for the fact that there are many people suffering in the world, that we, in fact, ourselves at times are caught in suffering. And for many of us in the West, we've grown up in a Judeo-Christian tradition, which is essentially a devotional tradition. I've met very few people who are genetically Buddhists, whatever that means, that most people, when we bring in the, the quality of the heart, the heart's qualities, it deepens and enriches practice. Taking this notion of being here now, and we could say, be here now with love, lovingly be here now, loving awareness, awareness being the foundation for compassion. At the same time, the heart will not remain open if we don't have a foundation in being here now, in being aware of what it is that arises that causes the heart to close, which leads us to our next quote, which is, suffering is grace. Ain't that a tough one? Suffering is grace. And what we're saying here is that there will be pain in the world. There will be pain in our bodies. There will be pain in our minds. I had oral surgery this last week, and the guy made a big hole in my gum. (laughs) There was pain. But the question is, did I have to suffer? Did my heart close because there was physical pain in my body? Does my heart have to close because a friend of mine in Australia who was supposed to come to an online group I was teaching on Sunday emailed me and said, I can't come because the smoke is so bad where I'm living that I can barely breathe. So I'm going to skip the group and stay in bed this morning. Can we keep our hearts open to all the suffering that's out there? And to the extent we can't, then there is this very direct and perfect and specific pointing at the places that we are caught in in concepts that prevent us from opening our heart there. So that the suffering is grace because it says, here's where one can deepen. Here's where there is productive work to do. Here's the place where if you investigate and you begin to have awareness, you're being here now, and you're opening your heart even to this place that there is pain, then grace will be revealed. In fact, the suffering itself is grace, which leads us to another quote, one of my favorites. If you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. I think it's easy to take that as a kind of acute, superficial thing that says the personality isn't all that important. And I'd like to take that maybe one step deeper than the superficial reading of that quote. And certainly, Enlightenment is not about fixing up your personality. Enlightenment is, in fact, letting go of 
identifying with the part of you that's separate and changing and identifying with that which is unchanging and true. However, if you are a son of a bitch, it is much more difficult to get enlightened because your heart will keep closing to things and there will be an instability in the mind. So that in the West in particular, it's very important for most of us to work with those places in our personality as an adjunct practice to spiritual surrender, that these are practices that feed each other. The, the psychological, somatic practices of dealing with early childhood woundedness and thus having a more healthy, functioning personality, which does not have the goal of getting enlightened. It has the goal of being happier and more efficient. And on the other hand, spiritual practice, whose goal is not happiness, it's freedom, it's truth. And if we're, if we're grasping at happiness, then those experiences that don't make us happy will often be unconsciously rejected. One friend of mine who is a meditation teacher said, we have to become somebody before we become nobody. And Ramdas's last interview movie was called Becoming Nobody. His becoming nobody involved 20 plus years of having a stroke where he could barely talk and he could barely walk and he was in and out of the hospital. It was a, a crash course in becoming nobody. Do we have to wait until things get that extreme? Can we begin to find this balance of working with the psychological practice with a goal and at the same time just practice without a goal which is surrendering into the truth of the moment. Ramdas wrote a book or more accurately he gave a few lectures which were patched together and put together as a book called The Only Dance There Is. And what we're saying here is that even if you or I or the person walking down the street doesn't think that you're on the spiritual path. The spiritual dance is the only dance there is. Everybody wants to be more happy. And even if you're anti-spiritual, you're anti-New Age, you're a complete secularist, people are still working with, how can I take these experiences in my life and use them to be somebody who is happier, more loving, and more efficient in my interactions in the world. To remember that this is the only dance, that all these other experiences we're having, there's the political dance and there's the financial dance and there's the dance of the body and there's the, the dance of relationships. All those are really just subsets of the only dance. And to the extent we remember that that's the dance we're dancing, in a way where we're dancing with God in each moment, or we're dancing with the truth in each moment. God is a very jealous lover. Whenever we think that we're going to uh, find something to replace that dance, that's going to make us happy, we usually find out in very direct and often unpleasant ways that that too is, is the dance with God. Ramdas once said that the spiritual path 
is very much like jumping out of an airplane and partway down as you're falling through the air, realizing you don't have on a parachute. And then a bit further of the way down, you realize, well, that's okay because there's no ground. I'm just endlessly falling through boundless space. And yet, again and again and again, we find ourselves in that transition stage where, whoops, there's no parachute, and are there rocks coming up as I'm falling down at this uncontrollable rate? Is it really safe to surrender? That quality of free fall that we experience at times in meditation, in being in nature and listening to music, in certain kinds of uh, interpersonal love or spiritual love with God, where we are completely trusting this falling, is then again and again interrupted by our conditioning, by that place where somebody would look at us and feel, you're a son of a bitch. <laughs> Maybe you're going to be enlightened son of a bitch, but you're not the most pleasant person to be around right now. And we say those things to ourselves. Can we begin to examine the propensity to be bothered, the propensity to be afraid that hard, solid objects are going to be bumped into as we are surrendering into spaciousness? If we really truly believe that suffering is grace, if we really truly believe there is only one dance, there is only this dance with God, then that surrender is a given. It, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's, okay, here's what I'm doing. But again and again, we get bothered. We believe our concepts. And in fact, holding on to concepts is the basis of suffering in the world. The concept that I shouldn't die now, or I shouldn't have cancer, or the planet should not be degrading, or there shouldn't be fires, or people shouldn't be suffering because of fires, are concepts. That does not mean that we are denying the suffering of people who are at the effect of fires. It does not mean that we don't do everything we can to make the planet a more habitable place or our society a more loving and compassionate community. But the way things are is exactly the way things are. And our only choice in life is do we relate to this moment and then this moment and then this moment with openness and acceptance and love and compassion and clarity? Or do we say, I don't like this moment, I wish it were different. We're getting here to the difference between preference and attachment. It's not that we're going to like every moment, but do we have to close to it? Is it necessary that we close our hearts because we don't like something? And in that sense, in a very profound sense, each moment is preparation for dying. The big letting go, where you will lose your body, you will lose your mind, you will lose all your friends, you will lose all your stuff. Before we started the recording today, I mentioned that I have a client, a young man, who has a brain tumor, who said 
to his mother, the closer I get to where I'm going, the less fear I feel. Can we use our experiences to go beyond fear? Which brings us to, I guess, maybe the final, no, almost the final quote, faith, comma, no fear, period, fear, comma, no faith. So in each moment, do we have faith in the Dharma? Do we have faith in God? Do we have faith in our true nature? If so, there's no fear. Or is there fear? Because we are caught in our conditioning that the fear overwhelms the faith. In these groups, we often do dyads. We used to do dyads, not so much lately. Like what blocks your love? Sometimes when there's an odd number of odd people in the room, I end up being uh, part of one of the dyads. Everybody has a partner. And somebody asks me, what blocks your compassion? And I answer this thing and I answer that thing. But I almost always get to the final answer, lack of faith. I get to the point where my fear overwhelms my faith in Maharaji, my faith in who I truly am, my faith in the Dharma. If I really had faith, then I would have compassion. So once again, this is suggesting this very important and provocative and interesting exploration of, in the moment, is there faith to surrender? I'm flying through space without a parachute. Is that okay? Do I have faith that I'm going to keep floating through space, no matter what's coming, that it's safe to surrender into this falling, this opening, this dropping? Or am I feeling lack of faith? Is there fear that I'm falling uncontrollably? I don't know what's happening next. And when we were very young, we didn't know what was happening next. We didn't have a lot of control. We created a personality specifically designed to protect us from the fears that were arising, to keep the metaconceptual distance. In a way, practice is very simple. It is, is deepening faith. One way of deepening faith is just being here now, that when we practice awareness, when we practice then compassion practice, you will see that by doing these practices, it leads to greater happiness. It leads to greater freedom. When on the other hand, we're grasping through fear, it creates suffering. And every time we notice this, it creates a new neural pathway that takes us beyond our fearful conditioning, our fear-based conditioning. Every time we're able to notice that fearful closing with a concept around what we're feeling now because it's a little too much for our faith and seeing what happens then and saying, ah, suffering is grace. Here is a moment where I can move into what it is that I'm feeling. That that creates this new neural pathway. It, it's like God is pouring just a little bit of nectar into that that groove in the mind where we've always done that other thing of acting out of fear. Which leads us then to the final quote, which is the title of one of Ram Dass's final books, maybe the final book, I don't quite remember, but it's something like, we are all walking each other home. So all these things are, I'm saying, it's easy to take them in as, here's this practice I do when I'm sitting alone. 
And I've got to learn to be more aware and more compassionate and trust the falling and suffering is grace and all those things. But really, in, in a way that cannot be overemphasized, these practices are most available when we're in communion with other people who are practicing. Do you have faith in Christ? Do you have faith in the mother? Do you have faith in the Dharma? Do you have faith in Maharaji? Or do we pull back into our shells and say, no, no, this is too scary, right? There's faith, this vertical faith in what it is that's the truth of the Dharma and those enlightened beings who have shown us that. But there's also faith in the communion of seekers. Those of us in this room, those of us listening to this recording, our teachers, our teachers' teachers back on in the history of the lineage. But particularly right now, there are millions of people, probably hundreds of millions of people on this planet who are seeking the truth in this moment. Not everybody in an obvious way, not everybody in a monastery or a convent or a ashram or something like that. It was simple people in simple villages. There are priests with fancy clothes on. There are people on the freeway who aren't upset when somebody cuts them off. People working to be better parents, to be better spouses, to be better children of parents, to be better caregivers. We can receive the blessing of the work that others are doing. It's something we're not doing alone. So first of all, there is so much conditioning behind our fear. And it may be that a certain stimulus has arisen thousands of times in your life and there's been a fearful response. My first guru way before Maharaji was Bob Dylan and he said, what price do we have to pay to get out of going through all these things twice? The price in some way is eternal vigilance. It's being aware of how we keep doing that. And that each time we can be aware of that and have compassion for that, it begins to wear away the conditioning. When he says, what price? I think if you were completely aware of all of the tendrils of how you're being afraid, you could get rid of some pattern really quickly. But most of it is so deeply ingrained that it's almost automatic, that we catch it as it's happening or after it's happening, rather than at the beginning, so that the practice is, as soon as you notice you're caught in fear, can you be aware of what that feels like without creating a narrative of what's going on or why it's going on? Just what does this feel like? Not focusing on the trigger, not I'm afraid because this might happen to my child, or this is happening to the planet, or the political life is going this way or that way, but this is what it feels like to be afraid. There's probably a tightness in your belly. There's probably a tightening in your shoulders. It probably is creating a more shallow breathing pattern. You notice that. You don't say it's good or bad. You don't try to fix it. You feel what it is like to be afraid. And it, it's a very simple thing for me to say that. That's a difficult task. Because almost always, as soon as fear arises, 
there is such a strong impulse to get away from that and to conceptualize it and to focus on the trigger. In conceptualizing it, we create some distance, a slight distance. It still is really unpleasant, but it's not that falling through space with the fear. Yet the healing is not happening. So can you be aware of what it feels like? And maybe starting with the lesser fears, with a minor fear rather than annihilation of the planet, maybe is not the place to start. And then can you have compassion for the part of you that keeps getting afraid? Can you really have an intimate, loving openness with that part of you that keeps waking up in the middle of the night and being afraid, and that happens again and again? Can you realize how much you've suffered in your life because of this pattern and really just feel some some tenderness, some intimacy with that part of yourself? If you can do that, then that's creating new neural pathways. That's changing the, the, the patterns of conditioning. This might not happen suddenly. It is, it is a process, but it is a very simple process. It's being with. Pema Chodron tells a wonderful story about a woman, a student of hers, who had a recurring nightmare where a demon would chase her, this very frightening demon, to the point the woman was getting afraid to go to sleep at night. And she came to Pema Chodron and said, I'm having this situation. And Pema Chodron said, see if you can, the next time this happens, instead of running away from the demon, turn and face the demon. For some reason, she was able to do this. She turned and faced the demon in the dream, and the demon dissolved and never came back. And she realized that she'd never even seen the demon. She was so busy running away from it, facing our demons. Fear is, is a unique emotion. Fear is based on separateness, that I'm afraid of something out there. And one can be, one can be, sad and be joyful at the same time. One can be awake during sadness. One can be awake during anger. One can be awake during tiredness or agitation. Almost always fear puts us to sleep. Sadness, I think, is a very appropriate human response to what it is that's happening to the planet right now. It's not so much what you're feeling, but your relationship to what you're feeling. Can you be open and be sad? There is a joy that transcends happiness and sadness, wellness and illness, even life and death. So my assumption is that as Ramdas was dying, he was feeling a joyfulness that was going beyond, am I living, am I dying? There's just this, whether the word is joyfulness or deep awakeness or whatever you want to call that. And one can practice looking at the news and feeling sad. And can you be present? Can you not have to close down automatically because you see that people are suffering? We can think of ourselves and the world and life itself as this twofold process, this human finite relative experience where people are living and dying and they're suffering and there's all the stuff that's happening. And there's this spiritual context that's infinite and absolute and perfect and pure. And it might be that 
90% of humanity has to die. And that's a profoundly sad thing. And there's nothing we can do about it. But we really don't know if that isn't the, the way things are unfolding. And it's, it's not something I would choose for my child to be living through. It's not something I think anybody in this room would be feeling is a great outcome. But at the same time, when we look at healing in a more individual sense, like for instance, in the 12 steps, the very first step is, I, I'll paraphrase it, I admit that I'm helpless. I, I admit that I'm powerless and I'm turning my life over to a higher power. So that until you really turn your life over, until you admit that uh, you're stuck uh, and you turn your life over, you surrender to God, the healing process hasn't started. And so that maybe, given the current political situation in America and in Britain and in Syria and in Iraq and Iran, all these places, maybe it needs to get worse before we admit that there is a problem here and we have to go in an entirely different direction. It, it takes a very dispassionate mind to realize that suffering is grace even on a global scale. It isn't only for you, that it's like people you love. Whole populations of people are, are caught in deep suffering. Can we have faith that what's going on is what's going on and our only choice is to open to it? There can be sadness, uh, it, it could be inspiration to action. But to feel hopeless or being afraid is, in a way, limiting our ability to act. Mm -hmm.